Would you please uh, open your Bibles, meet me in Romans chapter 9, verse 19, and we will do our best to finish the rest of this chapter today. Um, my name is Jason. I serve as one of the elders of church in the square, and uh, we are continuing in this series of reflecting upon Paul's letter written to a collection of Jewish and Gentile Christians in first century Rome. And to this point in particular, we've been exploring the Jewish response to the gospel. Because if you remember, Paul has taken specific attention towards his kinsmen, as he's called them, and, and he's wanted to deliver a difficult truth to them, that, that they are not favored by God any more than anyone else, that, that they are not guaranteed salvation has been a truth that Paul has sort of shifted at the beginning of chapter 3 to communicate, taken eight chapters to communicate the gospel. And then he's saying, by the way, you're not uniquely qualified for the gospel. And in and, and general, then, what we learn from that, which is really important for us, is that no one ethnicity or people is special in God's eyes because they are a part of a particular people group or ethnicity. That no one, in other words, is entitled to divine blessing, whether it be salvation or a new car. Whatever it is, none of us are entitled to the divine blessings of God. And, and Paul, though, is in anguish about this, if you remember. He's bringing a lot of emotion. He's being 100 with us about his feeling that his Jewish brothers and sisters have rejected Jesus as the Messiah. In Romans 9, 3, it says, For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. In other words, he's so grieved by this, he's like, I'd trade places with you. I'm so affected by this, I would want to switch places if I could. And through this chapter, Paul is using a literary device known as an interlocutor. And an interlocutor is, is, is essentially like him having a question with a fictional character, but really someone that represents a real person, an idea that he is interacting with someone based upon what he knows that they're thinking. And, and he's done this through a series of questions responding to the implications of the Jewish rejection, at least in part or in general, of Jesus as the Messiah. Now, in principle, what we've been exploring is, is the idea that God chooses some or saves some and not others, which is a difficult yet important truth for us to wrestle about because we make a lot of presumptions about that idea in this day and age. Um, and Paul has organized his explanation of this idea around three questions or three possible objections with this interlocutor conversation he's having with this fictional yet grounded in reality person, right? So today we'll look at the third. The first question that he asked in verses 6 through 13 is that if God saves some and not others, has God failed? Then we looked if, it got, if God saves some and not others. Secondly, we asked, is God unjust? And today we'll consider thirdly, if God saves some and not others, how can God find fault? So first we looked at, has God failed? Then is God unjust? And today we'll look, has God, or how can God find fault? Today's question really is about the nature of choice and about our understanding logically about the nature of choice. If God is the one doing the choosing, how can God find fault in anyone's choice or anyone's will? Or in other words, how could God hold someone accountable for doing something that it sounds like he made them do, Right? You tracking with me? This is a logical question that Paul is saying is springing out of the heart and mind of a Jewish reader who would naturally be wrestling with this. Paul has already answered in part a little bit this third question the way that he answered the second question about justice. So it's important to keep that in mind. In the, in the previous passage, we learned that God never condemns someone who has not by their sin already condemned themselves. 
So God never condemns someone who has not already by their sin condemned themselves. Remember, we looked at Pharaoh, that Pharaoh's heart was hardened by God in verse 18. But Pharaoh, it's clear, had already hardened his heart towards God. We look back at the Exodus story to see that. This is why C.S. Lewis, the great you know, novelist and writer, explained that there is no one crying foul in heaven, or rather in hell. No one is saying this is unjust, this is wrong. There is no injustice in hell. There is no injustice even in the new heavens and new earth, but mercy persists there as well. God's mercy alone gives a soul reward which they do not deserve. Or as English Bible teacher John Stott explained, if anyone is lost, the blame is theirs. But if anyone is saved, the credit is God's. That's Paul's answer to the second question. Is God unjust? No. Justice has been accomplished either through righteous consequence given to an individual or a group of people, or justice has been accomplished through the cross, which then extends mercy to God's people. Remember, we explore that mercy is only possible when justice has been satisfied, or else it's not mercy, it's something else. See, Paul's answer to the question three, then, is, is really an exposition of the second. So, essentially, he gives us the short answer to the second question, and he gives us a longer answer to question number three. That's what I'd like to talk about today. We only, I think, find fault with the nature of God's choice when we don't understand the nature of God. So this this question of can God find fault or how does God find fault is really a misunderstanding of the nature of God himself. That's what I want to talk about today. The nature of God and how it ought to change our response to his sovereign choice. We'll do this in three movements, of course, and we'll spend much longer on the first than we will the second and third. So if you are watching your clocks and you start doing that math, if he spent... 25 minutes on point one. We're never getting out of here, right? I know what's in your heart, right? But we'll spend a lot longer on the first than we will on the second and third. Uh, The first I'd like to look at is the unimpeachability of God, which is a fantastic word that we'll explore a little bit. So the unimpeachability of God, then the glory of God and the paradox of God. The unimpeachability of God, the glory of God, and the paradox of God. Again, an understanding of the nature of God so we understand the nature of God's choice. Let me pray quickly for us, and then we will continue. Father, if you don't speak, we won't know. If you don't reveal yourself, then then we won't know you. And so we thank you that through your word, you are so faithful, you are so gracious, and you are so kind to say, here's who I am, here's what I am like. So help us to be a people who hear you with humility, who respond with obedience, and who celebrate with joy when we get a clear picture of the God of the universe. Help us to not rush to applicability too quickly so that our our application and our response would be out of worship and not out of religion. And I pray that for myself. I pray that for my sisters and brothers. And we pray it in Jesus' name. And that's where the power is. In Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul's questions are coming from an understanding of his audience. He understands who they are. He knows how they think. He knows why they're going to object to his teaching on the gospel. And in particular, he knows why they're not going to like God's sovereign choice. He he surmises that if God chooses, then at the beginning of verse 19, 
How can God find fault? This is where that third question comes from. And perhaps you're wondering too. Perhaps this has been something you've navigated throughout your Christian life. Or perhaps you're not even a follower of Jesus yet because this is something that you don't quite understand. How could God blame me if God is in control of everything? And so we may uh, suppose this dichotomy exists, that God is either completely sovereign or I am completely free. And this is one of those passages that I think gives us some headway and understanding about an important question like that. So if God's will, God's will supersedes human will, how can we be held accountable? And I just want to tell you from the outset, you're going to hate Paul's initial response. You're going to hate it. You're going to hate it. I hate it. We're not going to like it. And I think by God's grace, he is going to mold us into an appropriate response to it. This is just what happens when our minds have been shifted in sort of a modern way of thinking. Look at verse 19 through 21. Uh, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another dishonorable use? See, I told you. That, that doesn't sound nice. That doesn't sound like really awesome to hear. Paul's initial response is, who are you to ask such a question? Oh, human being, right? It almost feels condescending. Like, you can't answer back to God. It sounds pretty harsh and, I mean, even dismissive. Paul is essentially saying what I think probably from a young age we learned uh, that was, could, could never be true. He's essentially saying, that's a dumb question, you human being. I cannot believe you'd ask that. That's what it feels like, right? Of course, he's not that direct. Instead, he borrows from this ancient illustration found in the writings of Isaiah. The metaphor comes in the middle of a prayer that Isaiah is praying when he says in Isaiah 64, 8, But now, O Lord, you are our father, we are the clay, and you are our potter. We are the work of your hand. Isaiah, if you notice, calls God father and potter. His, his prayer is, is a confession but not necessarily of, of sin first, but a confession of trust that is rooted in God's love. That's why he calls him Father. And it's rooted in God's power and skill. This is why he speaks of him as potter. Yet there's also this possessive language, isn't there? It's not just the Father. It's not just a potter. It's ours. It's our Father. It's our potter. So there's this sense of intimacy and relationship and belonging. So amidst uncertainty both Paul and Isaiah first consider the nature of God. Why? Because they fundamentally understand something that I think is important for us to concede and to ground ourselves in, that knowing God gives understanding not only to who God is, but who we are. In other words, if you want to understand yourself, we have to begin with God. This is fundamentally different from what we are told and what we are exposed to in the prevailing culture today. We are told that if you want to know yourself, then figure out what is truly true with inside of your deepest heart's desire and let that be exposed. What the scriptures teach us is if you want to know who you are, get outside of yourself, right? So we're often told if you want to know who you are, get inside of who you are and then tell the world out. It goes from inside out. What the scriptures teach us is to know who you are, you start from the outside in. If I want to know who I am, I have to start with God. See, if we're to understand God's uh, the nature of God's choice, we must first seek to understand God's nature and character, and subsequently we'll understand ourselves. After all, 
Asking who God is and what he is like is the first and foremost important question we ever ask when we open up the scriptures. I know there's a tendency, it's really easy to to look through the scriptures and to look for ourselves. We're used to that. And it's not necessarily that it doesn't speak to that. It's just if we start with ourselves and end with ourselves, we'll miss the point of the scriptures. Fundamentally, this is a book, this is a collection of stories and realities and doctrines and truths of God and not about us. And I think when we begin that way, we'll understand why A.W. Tozer opened up his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, this way. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Now, why would he say that? Because it affects everything else. Whatever I think about when I think about God leads to an understanding and a way of living beyond that. And so what Paul, what Isaiah are helping us to understand is that creation derives meaning, fulfillment, and flourishing from its creator. So if we want to understand or make any understanding of what's going on in this world, what's going on within us, what's going on with God, we start with God. So with this in mind, why does Paul take exception to this question? Why is he so mad? Why is he so bent out of shape that someone would ask this question? Because curiosity is wonderful. Asking questions is a sign of humility. It is religion that teaches us that asking questions is a threat, right? God never said that. God is constantly inviting his people to know him and to be curious and to draw near to him. Asking God, in fact, a genuine question is a sign of worship and trust. Scripture never rebukes the humble seeker, ever. Never rebukes the humble seeker. Rather, Dr. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones explains that Paul is concerned with what he calls a spirit of contention. It's not about the question, it's about the disposition. Paul isn't rebuking curiosity, Paul is rebuking entitlement. He's not rebuking curiosity, he's rebuking entitlement. And if we're honest, far too regularly, we approach God with a similar spirit of contention and entitlement. We often ask God questions that are really statements disguised as questions, right? They're statements with a question mark. You know what I'm talking about. It's a spirit which is demanding and a posture which presumes he owes me an answer or even he owes me a particular answer. So the question is more of a statement. This question in verse 19, though it is technically a question, seems to suggest something, that God is wrong that God should not find fault with anyone, that, that anyone that who's, who could not resist his will. And therefore, the asker believes that they are owed an answer. This is why Paul reminds them, and I think us, about the nature of God. You see, we ask questions like this with and entertain the spirit of contention when we forget who God is and we forget who we are what he's like and what we are like. See, Paul has demonstrated that our misguided spirits ask entitled questions. So if you are noticing entitlement starting to sort of seep into even your prayer life or the way that you navigate your relationships, it's really important to get back to who do I think God is? Who do I think I am? Right? It begins to unearth these things. And so what does Paul do in the midst of these entitled questions and this misunderstanding of who God is? He reminds us of a few things in this opening in verses 19 through 21. God is not our peer. We are not on par with him. God doesn't owe us answers. God can't be coerced. 
right? And coercion is, is like, if, if I put just the right words together, this is, these are the Pharisees that Jesus critiques who are always praying in the streets with all the right words. It sounds good, it looks good, but it's not good. God can't be coerced. He's not like, oh, you know, I was not going to give you that thing, but since you're so pretty and you're saying all the right things, here you go, right? Which, which we, we chuckle because that's so silly. We do that. I do that. It's hard in particular when I pray in public. I'm like, I better make sure that the Trinity is clear. I talk about grace and love, right? I'm making sure I, it's, it's, it's like Christian bingo to make sure that all of that then activates God into doing things for us as a church or you be impressed with me. This is what Paul is saying you can't do. He can't be coerced. He is not your peer. He doesn't owe us answers. So who is God? God is father, God is potter, and God is unimpeachable. In other words, we are not God's judge. He is our judge. We never stand over God and demand from him. He always stands over us and demands from us. Are, are, you under, are you picking up on this? Are you tracking with me? This is so fundamental, and it's so easy to forget that. Solomon learned this important lesson as he explored the morals and meaning of life. He met his limits and understanding before the Almighty God, and he speaks to himself at some point in Ecclesiastes, and he speaks to all of his readers then this. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, what does it say? Let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. Knowing God, understanding his character and nature leads to an appropriate humility and posture towards him. In other words, knowing God leads to knowing ourself. Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So in Romans 9, we are not being told to sit still and be quiet. That's not what Paul is saying. He's not demeaning us. We are not dissuaded from asking questions. Rather, Paul is encouraging us to begin curiosity with confession. To begin your curiosity with confession. The first thing we do when things don't make sense to us is to acknowledge who God is and what he is like. This is so important because when things don't make sense to us, we start acting crazy right? We entertain wild thoughts about who we are, who our friends are, right? Satan is a spiritual gaslighter. So he's going to constantly make you question reality when you are confused. And the best way to punch Satan in the teeth is to get back to who God is and what he's like and what his word says, right? Instead of meandering in this maze of, of uncertainty, right, and of centering myself and my emotions, I've got to get back to God's word. What does it say about who he is? That's my sure foundation, and then I will understand from there everything else. And in fact, sometimes we are so even critical of God, like, this doesn't tell me what's really real. This isn't up-to-date enough. This doesn't speak to the specific things that I'm going through. But it does. It absolutely does. Because if God is over all things and through all things and in all things, he brings himself majesty and worship and glory and all that, then he knows exactly what's going on. He's not, he's not sweating like you are. He's not, he's not wondering. He's, he's not uncertain about what's happening. He is grounded in the reality of himself because he's created it. So the first thing we need to do when we are feeling uncertain, say, who is God? What is he like? What does his word say? And what we will find is that he is unimpeachable. In other words, that he is entirely trustworthy. 
He is entirely pure, righteous, and good, and in control. So, so what happens when we begin to posture ourselves like that towards God? We stop asking him to change all of our circumstances around us to match our vision and our mood boards, right? We stop saying, God, align yourself with my vision. What do we start doing? God, would you align my heart with you? It's a completely different prayer, right? Instead of God, change my situation because I don't like them. God, change me because I'm not trusting you. It's a completely different prayer. So instead of saying, how could you find fault? God, I know that you are perfect. So if you found fault, it's right. Help me understand. That question's different. Help me see it from your perspective. I'm learning this right now, by the way. Someone who has authority in my kid's life has done and said something that I think is wrong and not helpful. And, and, and yet, I don't know. I don't really understand what's going on. So instead of like firing away and just going, this needs to change, you're wrong, I've got to ask a lot of questions. Hey, I actually trust you. You've done, you've done a lot of wonderful things in my kid's life. This doesn't make sense. Can you help me understand what I don't? Can you imagine if that's what Twitter was like? Can you imagine what that's what our relationships were like? Instead of running off to just going, this is wrong and evil and needs to change because my vision is unimpeachable. We go, God is unimpeachable. I know I'm not seeing this perfectly. God, help me. See, conceding this from the start, I think, gives us an appropriate view, not only of God, but also of ourselves. Lloyd-Jones elaborates. He says, realize your smallness. Realize your insignificance. Realize your finite character, your mortality, your sinfulness, your perversity, and realize the smallness of your mind and understanding. Nobody is telling us that today. It's the opposite. But what has happened in a world that, that begins to interact like this is that, according to Ed Welsh's book, who's actually the, the title of it is When, when uh, People Are Big and God is Small. The title alone is, is, is helpful is that when I believe that I am big and God is small, I always have questions for him that he has to answer. But if I am small and God is big, then I just know I'm not seeing it correctly. God, help me to submit myself underneath what you're up to and what you're doing. See, in other words, we confess that, that we are the ones being molded, that we are the clay, that, that you are the son, that you are the daughter who is eager to first and foremost surrender yourself to the heavenly father who, who is a good father, who is a skilled potter, who forms you into his very image. I've been learning this a lot as I've been reviewing the writings of Marva Dawn that she constantly is asking a question, not God, why, but God, what are you up to in this? You know, because sometimes when it's why me, we shake our fists and say it shouldn't be me. But when we say, God, what are you up to in the midst of this? All of a sudden, my heart, my eyes, my, my being is open to being molded by God into something. See, in God's moral economy, humility always comes before understanding. Humility always comes before understanding. That means that if I'm not learning, if, I, if I'm not growing, the problem is probably my pride. It's probably because I'm not curious. It's probably because I'm not admitting I don't see it perfectly. See, when God is big in our Christian imaginations and we are small, we start seeing things rightly. See, this is not about self-deprecation. I think it's about divine exaltation. It's making sure that my magnifying of the Lord is preeminent and not my protection of self. This is why this question makes sense. God is beyond our opinions and criticisms. His choice, therefore, is unimpeachable because God is unimpeachable. See, when we acknowledge who God is, the potter and the father, and subsequently realize who we are, the clay, the children, then and only then can we understand anything about what God does and why. 
In particular, we will understand the unimpeachability of God and we'll have eyes to see and hear something. What's Paul going to tell us? His glory. Now, understand the glory of his ways. That's what Paul tells us next. Look at verse 22. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Church, notice, even though we are not entitled to understanding, God doesn't owe us an answer. What's he do? He graciously gives us an answer. And it's only when we start with the posture of, like, I know I'm not in a place to even demand anything from you, but I'm really curious, right? God doesn't owe us an answer, but he graciously gives us one. He shines light. He helps us in this case. God is still gracious to make himself known. See, Paul says, by God's choice, uh, he makes power known. He makes his glory known. Remember our question, how can God find fault? The first answer, because he's unimpeachable. And the second answer is because he's glorious. Paul is essentially saying the glory of God justifies the finding of fault in guilty sinners or vessels of wrath. He's saying that the glory of God is the main reason for forgiving guilty sinners or, or being the vessels of mercy. God's glory then is the end which justifies the means of God's sovereign choice. God's glory is always the aim and is always his reason. At least, it always begins there right? When you grow up and go into Sunday school, the answer is always Jesus. And when you're an adult, the answer is always God's glory. Like at some point, right? There's a reason for that. Jesus is the one whom all history is pointed to, and glory is the motivation behind everything that God does. And glory is one of the most persistent themes in all of the Bible. It's God's ultimate purpose. John Piper explains what glory is in probably the, one of the most clear and succinct ways. You can read many paragraphs, but few sentences, I think, that help give clarity to God's glory. He says, God's glory is the visible manifestation of God's worth and beauty. He says elsewhere that it's God, God's glory is his going public of his character and nature. In other words, when we experience or see God's holiness or worthiness through the Bible or even in our lives, we're, we're seeing his glory. We're beholding his glory. We, we don't just behold his glory when we sing a song that, that makes us feel the effervescence, if you will, of our spiritual formation. We see his glory when we love our neighbor well. We, we see his glory when, when marriage like works. You know what I mean? Like when you hold one another accountable and support one another and husbands and wives love one another as Christ and the church have affection for one another. That's God's glory. In fact, Ephesians 5 is literally written so that when we look at godly marriages, we're meant to look and see the glory of God. See, we see the glory of God when we see the evidence of God's character and nature in, in all of creation and in his people. In Isaiah 6, Isaiah has a vision of, of angels with two wings, they're covering their eyes, with two, they're covering their feet, and with two, they're flying. They got six wings. It's epic, it's incredible. And they're yelling back and forth all day long what? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled of what? His glory. What are they saying? All of creation is announcing the worth and beauty of God. If we would just look. Let me break it down this way. If the mountains are big, God is overwhelming. If you're amazed when you go to Yosemite, or when you look at Lake Michigan and you just go, I don't know, I don't care. Everyone's lying. This is an ocean, right? 
no one is telling the truth, <laughs> right? There's just, this is amazing how big this is. Then you are overwhelmed by God. If photosynthesis blows your mind, if it's amazing, then God is a genius. If rainbows and butterflies are masterpieces, then God is a master craftsman. If the sunrise is illuminating, then God is the light that shines in the darkness and the darkness had to flee. If love is powerful, then God is omnipotent. If sex is euphoric, then God is our ultimate delight and satisfaction and joy. If community gives us belonging, then God is our eternal refuge and strength. Are you with me, church? If we get a pinprick of understanding, of flourishing, of joy in this life, what are we beholding? A little pinprick of his glory. It's meant to point us to him. It's meant to overwhelm us. In its created order, everything is meant to tell us the beautiful truth of God. Everything is meant to make known his power. Everything is meant to make known his glory. Everything is meant to extol, announce, celebrate, and worship him. Even when things are terrible. When things are awful. Because even the scriptures say that in our suffering, in our weakness... The strength of Christ is revealed. This is fantastic truth. That no matter where you go, no matter what happens, David even puts it this way. If I go up to the mountains, you're there. If I go to the depths, you're there. Wherever I go, you are with me. The glory of God is there, even in wrath and mercy. That's what Paul is saying. Wrath tells us something beautiful and true about God. Mercy tells us something beautiful and true about God. That's why God can, must, and does find fault to demonstrate his glory. But I don't think we like that very much. And so to help make this crystal clear, Marva Dawn in her book, In the Beginning God, says that the goal of Christian life is that for more and more seconds of each day, what we think and do and say is to God's glory, that every moment is worship of the true God instead of various idols of our making or of our culture's. What she's saying is that glory is everywhere, and it's meant to capture our attention and point our hearts to God. But glorifying God will always mean no longer glorifying something else. This, I think, is why we find fault, or why we find fault with God in finding fault. Why we think that God's wrath and mercy are so challenging to accept, because both tell us that our glory and the glories of this world are not the point. What's more, they are fleeting. God's choice brings him glory and not us, and that makes us incredibly uncomfortable. That's the costliness of confession and of our understanding. His glory decenters us and the prevailing values of our culture and society. You see, one of the reasons we react negative, negatively to wrath and mercy and make demands even on mercy is because we glorify humanity. We try so hard to protect the dignity of humanity. We fear that if God is lifted too high, that something will be stolen from the creation that's meant to reflect his glory. It makes no sense. He made us. He made us to reflect himself. That's where our dignity is, not in us preserving something that we have defined as valuable. See, so we're, we have this tendency to glorify ourselves, don't we? We want attention and credit and honor. See, in our sin, I think that we are not eager to find reasons to worship God, but rather we are eager to find ways to preserve our own truth and our own beauty. And this is something that we have to deal with. We have to confess and admit. See, but God's, God's wrath, rather, I think does something that is very uncomfortable. 
God's wrath tells us that our truth is actually flawed and even unjust. His wrath shows us what real justice looks like, what perfect accountability looks like, what protection and care for the the poor and the vulnerable and the marginalized and the weak look like. His wrath shows us his glory and his truth. And God's mercy tells us that our beauty pales in comparison to his. His mercy shows us real and full love, unmerited favor and grace and self-sacrifice, rescue for the distressed and the broken and the sinful. His mercy shows us his glory and his beauty. See, God has been making himself known for generations. See, Paul looked through history of Israel early in this chapter, and, and it showed us that God's choice is glorious. Then he looked at the patriarchs like Abraham and Moses. You remember that part in the previous passage? And it says that God's choice is glorious. And now he looks at Hosea and Isaiah, and we'll see the very same thing. Look at verse 25. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sands of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. To God's choice, then, is to call and make for himself a people, to save his beloved, to save a remnant. And all of this points to his glory. God's wrath points us to the glory because his justice is faithful and it's true. And his mercy points us to his glory because his love is unmerited and beautiful. We need not choose one or the other, as we discussed last week, that God holds both of these in perfect harmony within his character and nature. See, God's choice is beyond opinions and criticism. It's unimpeachable. Why? Because God is unimpeachable. And God's choice reveals his beauty and truth. It's glorious because God is glorious. And as we get a clearer understanding of God, I hope that you're, you're seeing this, church, that we see ourselves better. We gain an understanding of why he can and must and does find fault. Remember, that's our question. That's what we've been talking about. Paul is answering the question, how can God find fault? And the answer is because he's unimpeachable, because he's glorious. And now we'll consider lastly, because salvation is a matter not of the human will, but of worship. God finds fault because faith and works are worlds apart. God's choice then is based on faith and grace, which I think is quite paradoxical. At first blush, this last aspect, I think, of Paul's answer is really illogical, and yet that unsettling response that we have, I think, reveals something of the character of God. Look at verse 30. What shall we say then, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that, by, that is by faith, but that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law? Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, and whomever believes in him will not be put to shame. In short, Paul is saying that righteousness is a matter of faith, not works. It's about worship and not about human exertion or will. And this is paradoxical. Why? Well, paradox is something that ostensibly seems absurd or contradictory. And it would have seemed absurd to Jews 
that, that a Gentile person who did not have the law could become righteous. And it would seem absurd to Jews that Jewish people who had the law could be unrighteous. Why? Why is that absurd? Why would that be seemingly contradictory? Well, because they thought that adherence to the law is what made them righteous. And well, maybe some of you do too. It makes sense, doesn't it? You obey, you get the reward. You play by the rules, you get to win. Right? This is just logical, basic facts, right? This is why it's a paradox. And in fact, this is the basic flaw that is lodged underneath this original question. This is what leads to entitlement. This is what breeds that spirit of contention, the sense that we are owed something because of what we have done and who we are. It's a presumption of righteousness. Religious people think God owes them answers and owes them favors and blessing and salvation because they've earned it. And even if you've been saved by grace through faith, if you know that that is the truth of the gospel, we can often live in a very religious mentality, believing that God will make my dreams come true if I just do what he says. And therefore, our motivation is not his glory. It is not response to his love. We are actually chasing after something that Jesus said he gave us for free. Right? This is why it's a paradox. The religious people have a very small view of God, and a very large sense of self. I want to suggest to you this is why we ought to be and, and need to be very critical of evangelicalism as it is exposed in the United States in particular, and why it's actually really healthy for the church to, to call into question things that are presumed within the church because Jesus is making us holy. And we have a tendency as religious people to, to begin to live our lives based on rules and regulations and not on grace and love and mercy. And when we, when we have this posture of God is totally in charge, and I think there can be a motivation, let's not critique the church because everybody already hates us, so why would we be down on ourselves? The reason that we'd be critical is because Jesus says we're going to be perfect one day, made pure and spotless, that a bride is going to be presented to Christ without spot, wrinkle, blemish, or any such thing. And so we get to participate in that work, but the world would actually see that Jesus is pretty spectacular, even when his people fumble around and make mistakes all the time, right? Let's meditate on this. It's nice to talk about the church, but what about you? What do you think God owes you? What is it that for years you have been waiting for him to do? Maybe something he's never actually even promised. Does he owe you answers? Does he owe you a vacation? Does he owe you a marriage or a new one? Does he owe you children? Does he owe you at least obedient children? What presumptions are you making in your own spiritual formation? Does he owe you a new job? Does he owe you money? Does he owe you a house or health or well-being? What do you think God owes you? God, help us. Because whatever we believe God owes us actually reveals who we think God is. When you really push at that, See, when we think God owes us, we start making statements disguised as questions. It's got a question mark, but it's really a critique. When we think God owes us, then Paul says what? The gospel becomes a stumbling block and a rock of offense. We get frustrated and even offended by Jesus. Why? Because he doesn't pay up. He never pays up, at least not according to our expectations. In fact, he starts paying other people who didn't do all of the things that we did. Right? You're looking around and you know someone who's not at church today is about to get a blessing on Wednesday and it's going to make you upset. Right? 
or that couple that hasn't been in your group for like months and you're just like, God won't honor this. And then something good happens in your life and it makes you bitter, right? That's revealing what you and I think about God. I'm preaching to myself here, by the way, because if anybody's guilty of those things, it's me. And we think God owes us and we believe that he's going to pay up. He starts paying people we don't think deserve it. He blesses people who haven't worked as hard as us, lived as good as us, or look nearly as righteous as we do, right? He never blesses based upon effort or ingenuity. The blessing of God in general and the righteousness of God in particular are always only and eternally based upon mercy, and that unsettles my religious soul. Praise God it unsettles it. Praise God See, this is the nature of God's choice. It's unimpeachable. It's glorious and it's paradoxical. Dr. Tim Keller says that Christ is the rock that we either found our lives upon or we stumble over. And this is the difference between the two, our faith and understanding of Jesus. Paul has made exceedingly clear that God alone saves and elects and gives faith. So how could God find fault? Well, it's a paradox. If we are not saved, it's because we have rejected the gospel. That's justice. If we are saved, it's because God has saved us. That's mercy. That means that those who have the law may not be righteous. And those who don't have the law could actually become righteous. That's a paradox. It is unexpected. It seems absurd at first, and yet that's the gospel. Because the gospel is so much better than we could have religiously conceived. It is so much better than do good and get good. It is so much better than obey and get rewarded. It is so much better than show up in religious spaces and God will be impressed with you. This is saying that God is impressed with his children. God loves his kids. God shapes clay that is malleable in his hand. Not because we're really awesome at being clay, but because we're clay and that's what's supposed to happen. That's how he's created us. This is amazing. I could really be someone who constantly fumbles around and never gets it right, like the Apostle Peter, and God's still going to bless me because he's just that good. You feel that weight come off and that fear come off? That he is not a parent waiting to rebuke and give me consequence. He's waiting for, a, a, like a parent, he's like, I love you no matter what, just come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. I love the gospel. God doesn't owe us anything, and yet he gives us everything. That's a paradox. We see this most profoundly on the cross of Jesus Christ. The one who owed us nothing gave us everything. The truly glorious one who was owed and deserved eternal and unceasing praise and worship and glory and honor was treated as if he was owed nothing but death. That's justice and mercy. This is why he's unimpeachable. This is why, who are we to question him? This is why he alone is glorious. That's why this is a blessed paradox, and it should change the way you speak to him. It should change the way I speak to him, the way we ask him questions. So today, don't stumble over this truth. Build your life on it. Heavenly Father, help us. We're so quick with our words and our presumptions and our entitlements. Forgive us. What a beautiful and generous God you are. Humble us, we pray today. In Jesus' name, amen.